Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Talia Karner about The Third Daughter, set in the 19th century Russian Empire in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Normally in these introductions I read an opening passage from the novel itself to give listeners a flavor of the writing. And indeed, The Third Daughter is beautifully written, lyrical and expressive. But the first paragraph we encounter as we turn the pages is so apropos to the subject at hand, and was in fact one inspiration for the book, that I'm going to read it instead. It comes from Shalom Aleichem's short story, The Man from Buenos Aires, written in 1909. I am a procurer. I provide the public with merchandise. Merchandise that everyone knows but no one speaks of. My business, if you want to know, is everywhere, in the entire world. Paris, London, Budapest, Boston. My main office, though, is in Buenos Aires. I have an eye for the goods. One glance and I can tell you how much it's worth and how far it should move. In my business, though, a sharp eye alone is not enough. One also needs a keen nose, a sniff that will tell you from a mile away what kind of a dog is buried there. What do I deal in? (laughs) Not in Hanukkah candles, my friend. Not in Hanukkah candles. And now, please join me in welcoming Talia Karner. Hi, Talia. I look forward to talking with you today. Well, thank you so much for having me on your program. The Third Daughter is your fifth novel, but you had a productive and fascinating career before you started writing fiction. Do tell us a little bit about that earlier life and how it prepared you for becoming a novelist. Well, nothing prepared me to become a novelist, but I can talk about the earlier, the previous career, and that is uh, for 25 years, I was in advertising, marketing, and magazine publishing business. For me, it was one career, even though it sounds to the outsiders as being three different fields, but they were always completely enmeshed one within the other. And I went up the ranks and within the advertising magazine business and eventually became a, actually not eventually, pretty fast. I became a publisher of a major women's magazine in the middle 80s that was Savvy Woman. And then one day in 1993, I was also a volunteer counselor for the Small Business Administration. I was sent to Russia twice to teach Russian women entrepreneurial skills as a volunteer. I was caught in the uprising of the Russian parliament in 1993. That was later, 20 years later, documented in my novel, Hotel Moscow. And uh, anyway, coming back, I ended up starting to write fiction full-time. And I found that writing novels was my natural format of storytelling. I 
do not particularly like to write poetry. The gravity does not give me much much satisfaction as when I get a span of 100,000 words. And that's how I found a new calling, writing novels. And it's very important to me to be able to hold all those forces that shape our lives in one, it's like the balls up in the air, whether it's the economic, political, psychological, religious, geographical. We are all products of our geography as well. I hold all of this at the same time horizontally as my mind also moves vertically, moves on with the story, with all those forces that shape our lives, making that story and changing it as we go along and as the protagonist finds her way through through that. And that's basically how I ended up now publishing my fifth novel with Harper Collins. It's it's wonderful to have a good strong publisher behind me and an editor who believes in my ability. And I think the one thing that stands out is the fact that I write about social issues. And I write about difficult social issues as the third daughter is about sex trafficking. So it's never easy but not it's not it's a process for me to go through this entering uh, crawling under the skin of a protagonist as she struggles through those situations and it varies from place to place and my novels take place in different countries because it depends on this on the issue if it's infanticide of a killing of baby girls then obviously it happens in china it's not like i'm I was first preaching against killing baby girls and then looked around and said, oh, where am I going to write a novel that's going to be set, where is going to be the setting of my novel? No, it's, I happened to be going to China and encountered that situation. And that's where the novels begin to form in my head. So I'm going to go straight into... Uh, asking you about the third daughter and um, how you were drawn to this particular story of sex trafficking and also the quotation that I read from Shalom Aleichem's story. Um, How does that fit into the story and the book that you created? I was first introduced to, new, for me, new forms of sexual violence against women in the, at the, 1995 International Women's Conference in Beijing, where I listened to a, an aging Filipina who had been captured as a teenager during World War II by the Japanese army. And like other tens of thousands of girls from around the Pacific Rim, she was sent to, quote, comfort stations, end quote, that served the sexual needs of the Japanese army. And there only was, at the time that this woman spoke, there were maybe only six women from alive still. And that is because many of them, if, if they survived, they committed suicide after once they got back to their villages. But this woman wanted to live to tell the story and to get an apology from the Japanese and. Uh, and a an admission 
of a crime that was never forthcoming. And as she spoke, tiny little woman, maybe she was 75 pounds, she had an operatic voice. She could have been in the Metropolitan Opera in New York where I live. And an incredibly beautiful, haunting voice. And of course, I didn't understand the words. They came to me through the headset from the interpreter. But the voice stayed with me for, for years. And in the coming years, as I live in New York and I was affiliated with non-governmental organizations active at the UN, I started going to lectures and presentations about sex trafficking in all forms. Uh, So all of these forms of violence against women just touched me really deeply. And I looked into them in various ways. In my novel, uh, Jerusalem Maiden, I touched lightly on this marriage of child brides. But my protagonist got out of it somehow. Uh, she's not suffering from it, but uh, it was something that more and more became part of uh, my awareness. And uh, the sex trafficking is just something that happens and it, it doesn't stop. And then one day I was reading, I was looking into Shalom Alechem, that's the Yiddish storyteller who wrote the character of Tevye from Fiddler on the Roof, which we are all familiar with. But I knew that the original story, Tevye had seven daughters. And I was curious to read about the other stories of the other girls. What happened to them? Who were they? And I, so I got a, a couple of versions of the translation of his books, of, of this collection. And it happens to be a collection called the Railroad Collection, where the author supposedly is on the train meeting different characters and telling you they give you him monologues actually this is a whole series of monologues by different characters and Tevye comes on the train once in a while and says oh Mr. Author here you are again let me tell you what happened to my next daughter and that's how we ended up with the stories of Tevye which as I said was later adapted to Fiddler on the Roof but there had been other dramatic forms way before 1964, Fiddler on the Roof. In that collection, I found a short story called The Man from Buenos Aires, who is a businessman traveling on a train in Russia, meeting the author and tells him that he is a very successful businessman, now looking for to marry a virtuous Jewish bride. And the author asks him, but what's your business? And he keeps on carrying on. Oh, I know my merchandise. I'm so successful. I have the police in the back pocket and so on. And you really started getting really an unpleasant feeling about this character. And that's the quote I use in the front. And that entire story is now translated. I tra- retranslated it uh, on my website because there was no English, good English language translation. They were actually pretty horrible. So I translated it in the story, The Man from Buenos Aires, which leads me to the story of the third daughter, which is like the time that Tevye and his wife and two unmarried daughters leave the stage and they are in a pogrom bloody, terrible situation that cannot be shown 
on stage the level of brutality against the Jews that was taking place under the Tsar in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Actually, it went through 400 years of the Tsar. But now that they leave the stage, and they meet the man from Buenos Aires, and he is so seductive, and Tevier, which when you read my novel, you recognize the character. I changed the names only because I started cutting off. I didn't need so many sisters. I didn't, did not need all of, to retell their lives and their loves and how they ran away. I needed to focus on my protagonist and that moment of the family when they escape. And, and those uh, first chapter or two are on my website so that your listeners can, of course, uh, read that and get that impression. And you recognize the character. It's not copyrighted, so I could channel that uh, old character into a new situation, which is very interesting as a writer to channel a particular character and come up with a monologue and, and a dialogue with his wife, the, the same language that they use, and I read it in Hebrew also, which is my uh, mother's tongue, uh, that was closer to, in, culturally, to the way they spoke. So I was able to get that, channel that, and of course I write directly in English. I don't translate in my head, but this story was just something that wrote itself almost. I was there with Kevye and his wife, and the new names are different, but uh, the story, of course, from this point on, goes into Batya, the protagonist. And Batya feels tremendous amount of responsibility for her parents, and she wants to make them happy. So tell us about Batya um, and her family. Uh, she is in Ukraine, which was then part of the Russian Empire. It's 1889. And who is she? She's a 14-year-old girl whose two elder sisters ran off with men of their own choosing, breaking their parents' heart, especially the one who ran off with a non-Jew. And that is a huge no-no in the Jewish tradition. Uh, considering the daughter dead for having done that was not unusual. It was something that's pretty customary for those who left the the, the fold and the tribe. So after, after that second sister broke, broke her father's heart, Batya is so, she loves them. It's a loving family and she wants to make her parents happy. Now they are on the road. They have no place to sleep, to live. They have very little food. Her father is a dairyman, so they have some cheese and butter. They have the, uh, some milk that they had milked the cow, but basically they're, they're totally homeless on an empty road in the late fall. And finally they find um, a shelter in some barn and a tavern and she goes to work at the tavern. This is all on chapter one, so I'm not <laughs> giving out the story, but it's her chance to work and give do and, and protect her family by giving them the right at least to sleep in the barn but 
unfortunately, that is not going to last. And at that point, that is when they meet the man from Buenos Aires. So her sense of responsibility for her parents is, is, is great. And when that man offers her father, uh, he makes a proposal of marriage, and he says he's not marrying her now at 14. He's going to marry her when he's, she's 16, but he wants to make the arrangements now, which the parents... Uh, the, the parents eventually agree to. They don't jump onto it immediately because there's no matchmaker. And a matchmaker was imperative for this introduction within that tradition in those, that community. But since this family is totally isolated and all the other Jews in that town had been murdered, they, there is no matchmaker. And finally, when... The, the father actually says when he sees how this Yitzhak Moscow, Mr. Moskowitz is being viewed by other people as they arrive into a town where he goes to the synagogue and everybody's been waiting for him and, and they take, treat him with so much honor, the father says, well, instead of one matchmaker, we have the entire town vouching for him and his decency. So they eventually agree. And I'm not going to give the story any further, but Batya now has to struggle with saying yes or no. And the moral dilemma is huge because as a 14 year old, she can't even begin to think about marriage, let alone not to some stranger and somebody who's uh, from another world and seems to be so much older he's probably close to 30 so that's the first moral dilemma that she encounters and they are going to be more throughout the story and that is really what makes i think any novel carry a story and hook a reader when the reader doesn't know for herself when you read it you don't know what would i've done would I have accepted? Would I have? You would have struggled the same way as she does in this moral dilemma and in another, whatever dilemmas come up later. So that I think is what's so important for the book is she has to struggle with different decisions as they come along. So I don't want you to take you further into the plot than you feel comfortable with, and you say you don't want to say any more, and that's fine. I think, um, given that we've established that the novel is about sex trafficking, it might be useful to talk about the broader environment um, that makes this possible, uh, specifically that um, in the 19th and early 20th centuries, prostitution was legal in Argentina. And in fact, it was legal in the Russian Empire, although not, I think, for girls of 14. Um, so the novel, is, The Man from Buenos Aires, is in fact a representative of a tra trafficking organization known as, I'm going to mess up the pronunciation probably, Zwi Migdal? Yeah, Zwi Migdal. It was a legal legal union based, headquartered in Buenos Aires, but it spread all throughout South America, and actually it was so large and powerful 
that it reached Shanghai and Lower East Side in New York and other places. It op- operated with impunity for 70 years. And the short story, The Man from Buenos Aires, is a representative of how these well-heeled men would travel from South America to the Eastern Europe would and would offer jobs and marriages to women, most all Jewish girls and women. The jobs, for example, they would say, my mother is ill and she needs a Yiddish-speaking companion. They targeted single women. They also targeted widows. And they targeted widows who had teenage daughters. And once these women were captured, uh, the voyage to South America could take easily three, four weeks on a ship and depending on the number of stops. That was an opportunity to break these women down by rape, beating, torture, starvation. They were caged. They, I, I read the story of one woman who had actually at that point, it was already in the early 1900s when they had uh, the freezer freezers for to transport food and they put them in there so it, it it's just the torture is beyond imagination and by the time these girls and women arrived in south america they were then put into forced into prostitution and this is what happens to batya as well i can give that because it's part of the promo material about the book but how it happens, how we, we feel it from the inside, it's not an easy read at times. But I must say the readers say it's compelling, gives the real sense of what's happening that's so different from reading just a dry non-fiction material about it, which what I like about fiction, both writing and reading, you get a sense from the inside. And unfortunately, I mentioned, uh, you mentioned that it was legal in most of those South American countries. The Argentine's government's budget was based upon 25% of its budget was from brothels. And not only the brothels were legal, but the ownership of these women, enslavement was legal. They were registered in the city, in the towns. It was Rio de Janeiro, it was Montevideo, it was all over South America, which is why, why this is so heartbreaking to read and understand that this existed. The operatic voice that remained in my head of that aging Filipina who had been captured in the Pacific Rim, decades before, stayed with me so that when I read about the women, the Jewish women in Eastern Europe being captured and brought to South America to be enslaved, I started hearing their sounds, their crying turned into some keening, and I could not let go, you know, once you know something, you cannot unknow it. And I could not let those voices 
silenced anymore. They had been silenced. They had been betrayed by their people. Uh, charities of South America would not take care of the prostitutes and their children. So, and they were not allowed to be buried within the Jewish cemeteries along with the pure Jews because they were considered impure, silly. They were pushed outside society, even though I, with my 21st century sensibilities, see them only as victims. I agree that it's at times not an easy read, but it is absolutely a riveting read. I think I read it in two evenings. I mean, I just couldn't put it Thank down. You. There is one element of it um, that is actually more positive. And actually, the whole novel is positive in the end. I mean, the arc is positive. And that's the tango. I was kind of surprised, actually, to find out that tango went that far back in Argentina. What, how, what is its history? Actually, tango began in the late 1800s, the same time that Batia arrives in Buenos Aires. And it began in the brothels of, of uh, Buenos Aires. So that the timing happened to be, I was looking into the novel and looking, st- studying what was going on in Argentina in so many aspects when the tango jumped at me and uh, it was, a wonderful point of flight in this story. And since that, that is where Tango developed, I, it was very natural for Batya to fall into it and to fall in love with it and in the music, the rhythms, and also the romance of it and the ability to control something that otherwise she could not control. She was more in charge while she was dancing tango. And she became a known tango dancer, which was uh, definitely points of light in her life. For me, from a research point of view, it was interesting because I used to dance ballet un- uh, until about 15 years ago as an adult. So I'm a natural dancer. but I never danced a double, a couple dance. So I started taking private lessons, uh, tango lessons, in order to understand what tango was all about and understand the the masculine-feminine roles that play so clearly in this particular dance and the illusion of romance with complete strangers. That's what I had to do in terms of research is studying myself, learn to dance tango, which was very interesting. And I did well as long as I was with private instructors. Uh, Then I started going to Milongas, which is a dance hall all over the U.S. They are those dance halls. They specialize in tango, but that's where I have to, I had to dance in close embrace with complete strangers, which I'm very uncomfortable with. And many women are not. Many women I met there that I don't mind by the fact that I'm so uncomfortable having my chest pressed against a stranger's chest. I realized that I'm intense, without any intending to, I was experiencing another part of uh, my protagonist's life. I quit going to Milanga's. It's uh, a very interesting part of research. Sometimes as an author, I need to go into what I don't know 
when definitely I knew nothing about prostitution to begin with, but I um, had to learn about the history of, of the place. I had been to Buenos Aires three times prior, but the last time was 2007, I believe, or 2011. Uh, yeah, 2011, I passed by on, on the way to Patagonia, so it was only one overnight. But I have friends there. So it was very interesting for me to study the foods and I know the streets, but I had to use researchers to help me since I don't speak Spanish. I hired a local men and a woman research assistant so that, for example, if my, if my protagonist, Batia, walked from point A to point B, I know what street she was walking on, but was that the same name of the street 120 years ago? I had to be very careful to be correct in something like this because one mistake like this could really take away a tremendous amount of credibility. I needed to know what they ate then. Was it probably not American cornflakes, which you can find now in the supermarket? They ate something else for breakfast 120 years ago. So all of that was part of my research of uh, the time and place. It's definitely very a very interesting experience for me to take this journey on the cultural stuff. And, of course, there is the Teatro Colón, a beautiful theater for which I, it's, it was uh, designed by a French architect to as a copy of the Paris Opera. And uh, it's grand, it's beautiful. And um, I've been there, but that was another experience for Batya to be there for the first time and in the grandeur. And my research happened to come up that the reopening of the Teatro Colón, it had been closed for 20 years because the um, philanthropist who had financed the renovations had died and the city couldn't come up for 20 years with um, the money to finish this. And guess who came to the rescue? Swimming Dal, the traffickers union that had so much money. They paid for it. They looked for respectability. And I found that the, re- the opening night of Teatro Colón was, the opera of Aida. And that's another, just interesting because Aida is a story of an enslaved girl who's been captured in Egypt. So that's very interesting because Batya could relate so much to that story. And this was relates to that story, but those are the kinds of points of light that come up in the life that she makes for herself in Buenos Aires, even as she's uh, uh, a prostitute, but in a better quality, so to speak, a brothel, and she develops warm relationships with some of her customers, her regulars. And uh, those are very interesting relationships that play in the novel and obviously change the course of, of some things for her. And we are going to find out when we read it. So what would you like readers to take away from the third daughter? The humanity of a prostitute. That it's not how she dresses, behaves, solicits. She's enslaved. And 
there is the person behind who is a victim. And once we love Bhatia, we begin to understand the humanity of today's enslaved women. They are victims, and those who, for example, born in the United States, I hear a lot from members of organizations that deal with anti-sex trafficking, they usually have a history of sex abuse in a variety of abuse in the family, socially, maybe socially isolated at school when she's recruited at 12 to 14. So they are already victims at the time that they're being recruited. Low self-esteem. The, um, the, the idea is that we get to know the person and then we can begin to understand the humanity of many of the others, today's victims, and then try to help them get out. And to do that, there are a lot of things that the listeners can do. They are on my website. There's a page, what you can do. The Third Daughter came out in September 2019. Um, are you already working on something else? Yes, I am already two years into researching a novel set in France. And like my other books, I'm... I, each one happens in a different place. It just, sometimes just a, a comment, a passing idea plants itself in its head and then in my head. And I find out that I knew something or some something about it had stayed with me. And this is a case where I traveled with my husband and another couple in France. And I saw a road sign. To a town that had we had no interest, it's not a tourist attraction, but I knew the name. And I said, oh, my God, I, I know something about it. And I got back home and I started reading about it. I wasn't going to touch it until this book is put to bed and I finished my book tour. I was going to get into it then, except that I found people who were still alive who knew about it. And I started interviewing them. I, I had to do it because they were all in the late 80s, early 90s. <laughs> and if I didn't get them now, I couldn't get them any other time to hear the stories, the historical facts firsthand and how they experienced them. So I ended up spending this past two years uh, interviewing and found, made uh, quite, a, quite an interesting journey. I went back four times to France to interview people. But now I've, I'm done with the interviewing. I need to sit down and write it, which is not going to happen for another year and a half or two years when I have peace of mind. <clears throat> That's why it takes me four or five years between books. I can't do everything. I need to really give it a tremendous amount of uh, concentrated time. When I write a book, I may write 10 to 16 hours a day, six days a week. You know, I'm in a trance, I'm in a dream. You can't wake up from a dream, make a phone call, go back to the dream. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, and good luck with that new project. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Talia Karner about The Third Daughter. Find out more about her at www.taliacarner.com. 
That's T-A-L-I-A-C-A-R-N-E-R. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creative community. As NBN listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do slash nbn slash join. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histvic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplezzi.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network. <laughs>